Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Different kind of episode here today, Jimmy. Uh, we found the depositions uh, between the Neil Gaiman, Todd McFarlane lawsuit uh, regarding Angela, Medieval Spawn, uh, Miracle Man is caught up in there, Work for Hire, What is Work for Hire is uh, involved in that lawsuit. And uh, I thought it would be super fun to go through these depositions, see what kind of traction this kind of episode gets, because the entire reading is incredibly fascinating, but we're not going to be able to get to all that here today because there there is a lot of substance to these depositions. We're going to do the Neil Game one, the Neil Gaiman one first, and it pretty much revolves around uh, Spawn issue number nine, the Angela miniseries, the characters of Angela, medieval Spawn, uh, Cogliostro. These are characters that transcended Spawn issue number nine into other miniseries, toys. Movies, feature films, video game characters, the HBO animated series. A lot of money. A lot of money is what you're saying there, Ed. A lot of money, man. In those 1990s, the comic book game was different, and it was big business. Millions of dollars uh, at stake. And unfortunately, in those kinds of situations, legal entanglements ensue, man. Uh, You look silly if you're fighting somebody over $1,000 in a courtroom where the lawyer fees transcend what kind of rewards you might receive back. But when you're playing with millions of dollars, it's a different ball game. Yeah, I think we came across this probably in our wizard coverage. Yeah. We were talking about uh, you know, the Neil Gaiman spawn issue and, and you can't you, you can't avoid this. This was such a big story. For over a decade I think this stuff kind of raged back and forth in different capacities. So you would see that a lot in like comics internet and in any magazines that covered comics. And finding the actual depositions and starting to read them, I can remember coming in and being like, we should just read this instead of the Wizard magazine. (laughs) Like, this is such interesting material. Because you get the legal perspective is sort of explain the comics industry. to Give us some context for the comics industry and how that business works. And it starts to kind of like, I don't know, illustrate like we're so close to it, maybe you don't see the forest for the trees. The deposition, whenever I started reading it, was like, Oh, wow. This is a, a a little bit of a different perspective on comics. So much idealism uh, would go into comics when it's the creatives who are involved in the administrative and the business stuff. You know, we did the Kevin Eastman Tundra conversations and stuff. This this is a version of that. Where Todd McFarlane isn't a practice businessman at that time. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, handshake deals and things. And it has to be ironed out. And kind of the climax of events is a judge that has to read 150 issues of, <laughs> of Spawn to try to figure out the differences between Dark Ages Spawn and Medieval Spawn and what kind of rewards Neil Gaiman sh- should get, if any, for that sort of thing. I'm so glad you say that. It's such a crazy case. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's a lot of testimony here for us to get into. So here's what we'll do. Uh, for this vid, I'll play the role of uh, the, uh, the, the attorney, or basically any non- Neil Gaiman person participant in this deposition. Mostly it's uh examination by Mr. Salish, which is a Todd McFarlane attorney. Okay. I think. And I, I will read the Neil Richard Gaiman uh parts. Yes. Uh so without further ado, man, uh it begins uh Neil Richard Gaiman called as a witness after being uh duly sworn in above uh, examination by Mr. Salish, and that's this is where I come in, Jimmy. Uh, could you state your name for the record? Neil Richard Gaiman. 
And could you spell that last name for me? G-A-I-M-A-N. Are you a citizen of the United States, Mr. Gaiman? No. Do you reside here in the United States? I do. And what state of residence are you part of? Wisconsin. Have you ever had your deposition taken before? No. All right, here we go. Let me just get, let me just kind of go through some of the ground rules today. I understand you were out in Phoenix last week at the deposition of Todd McFarlane and Larry Martyr, depositions that we will be getting into uh, in, the, in the future. You probably observed the procedure. If I could refresh your memory on a few things. As you saw, it's a question and answer process, and the court reporter here today is making a record for us, which we get to enjoy here on the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Uh, the goal is that we get a clean record, meaning something that the lawyers can all use later in the case if need be, and it'll preserve your testimony. So with that in mind, uh, I would like to make sure that we, in order to make this clean, that when I'm asking you a question, uh, if you will wait until I finish my question to give your answer. I'll do my best uh, to wait until you finish your answer before I ask the next question. Is that all right? Yes. And you have just, uh, my next point, you're already doing it correctly, is we do need to have verbal answers to questions. And more than just verbal, uh, they actually need to be words. <laughs> so uh, things like, uh-huh, uh-uh, doesn't translate. Is that okay? Yes. There will be times when all these rules break down. We start getting conversational. I'm as guilty as the next person, uh, so things aren't very clear. We're talking to each other. If that's the case, I may step back, go back over a few things, just so that we have everything clear. Do you understand? Yes. Uh, if at any time you need a break, just let me know. That's fine. We've got refreshments here, and obviously restrooms. I would ask you, however, uh, if you do need a break, uh, if there's a question that's currently pending, you should go ahead, give a response to that question, and we will uh, take a break afterward. Okay. Also, you have counsel here. This is where Tom should show up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you probably saw last week, uh, sometimes uh, lawyers make objections to questions. There may be a lot of objections today. There may not. Uh, but just so you understand, those objections that your attorney is making are in order to preserve the record. A judge would later uh, rule on whether the question was in fact objectionable. So it may be that I will change my quest question or uh, I may simply ask you to go ahead and answer the question anyway. And unless your attorney specifically instructs you to answer the question or not answer the question, uh, I will ask that you go ahead and answer. Do you understand? Yes. You're certainly free to consult with your attorney uh, through any of this. I'm not talking uh, about keeping your attorney out of things. I just want you to understand the process Okay. You said you never had a deposition taken before. Have you ever been a party to a lawsuit prior than this? No. Have you ever been a witness in a lawsuit of any kind? No. What is your educational background? School, English school. Do you have a college degree? No. Public school, private school? English public school, which is a private school. Did you take any college courses? No. I would like to ask you some questions now about your employment history, and I don't need every single job you've ever done. Uh, we only have a day here. And I understand that you are a writer, is that correct? Yes. And have you been a writer? Let me step back. Uh, maybe I could come at it this way. Uh, since the time that you left public school, have you worked as a writer? Yes. Pretty much nonstop that entire time? My first, at the point where I started paying taxes, I was paying taxes, very small ones initially, as a freelance journalist, as a writer. And that's when I have been paying taxes on ever since. And of course, we are going to assume 
that there wasn't a five-year period where you were working without paying taxes, right? I was not. I worked for, I think, about a three-year period after getting out of school as a counselor for the Church of Scientology and was not earning enough to pay taxes during that time. Are you still involved with the Church of Scientology? I don't understand the question. Okay, thank you, by the way, for telling me that, because that's something uh, I should have mentioned before. Uh, if there is a time today, or there may be many, that you don't understand my questions, please just ask me to rephrase. You stated that uh, you spent three years, approximately three years, working as a counselor with the Church of Scientology. Is that right? Yes. Uh, were you a member of the Church of Scientology at that time? Yes, at the time. Are you still a member of the Church of Scientology? I don't consider myself as such. When was the first time you published any freelance writing? Or maybe I should ask, uh, when was the first time, and just generally by year, that writing uh, you did was published? In 1981. Do you recall what that was, uh, what the first work was? A review of a 10cc concert, I believe. And was that with a newspaper? Yes. Uh, did you... Did there come a time in your employment or in your career as a writer that you began writing in the comic book industry? Yes. When was that? 1986. Although I had begun writing comic scripts, which were later published in comics form in 1985. So mid-80s, you began writing comic scripts. Is that correct? Yes. And in 1986, uh, was that the first time one of your comic scripts was published in comic book form? Yes. Do you recall what comic that was? There were a couple that were more or less simultaneous. It would either have been 2000 AD or it would have been Knockabout Comics, Outrageous Tales from the Old Testament, which was a Bible comic. You said 2000 AD. Was that the title of a comic series? It's an English weekly comic, an anthology comic, and they ran a series called Future Shocks, which were three, four, five pages normally with a twist ending. So uh, for the people at home, this deposition takes place in the year 2002 to give context for this next part. Uh, have you gone back since we hit the year 2000 to see if you were correct in any of the predictions <laughs> you might have been making back in the mid 80s? I was never really into prediction. I guess that's a no question mark. No, I have never gone back to check. Just curious. Uh, did there come a time that you began working with DC Comics? Yes. When was that? 1987. And how did that come about? I wanted to write for DC Comics. Why is that? 2000 AD stuff that was published, I rapidly realized that they were taking all rights to the work I did. Who do you mean by they? 2000 AD. At that point, I think it was Fleetway Publications. One had to sign over all rights, and I saw stories I had written reprinted in American editions and that they gave me no copies of and that I was not paid for. When you... When you wrote for the comic 2000 AD, were you paid for that work? Yes. Were you paid a flat fee for turning the, in the script? Yes. Did you sign a contract with, uh, was it Fleetway Publishing? Yes. It was a back-of-the-check contract at the time. And did that back-of-the-check contract state that you were granting all rights in the work you were turning in to Fleetway Publishing? I no longer remember. How do you know that they were taking all rights? Because they never paid anything else for use. Were you finished with that? I am now. Did you ever complain about that to Fleetway? I spoke to Steve McManus, the editor, who said that was how they did it and they would love to change it, but it wasn't changed. And that was the last thing I did for 2000 AD. When you say they were taking <clears throat> all rights, what do you mean by the term all rights? In this case, I mean specifically reprint rights without payment. 
So that I understand your answer, do you mean that Fleetway had the right to reprint your work without paying you? Is that what you understand by them taking all rights? In this case. When you say in this case, were you referring to the 2000 AD, correct? 2000 AD short stories, that was their practice. Just so I understand, do you believe that 2000 AD should have had the right to do reprints, but they should have paid you for that? Is that your contention? Yes. So it was the lack of payment that was the real problem. Is that correct? No other issues, no other rights issues ever came up on those stories. Did you have an understanding as to who would own the copyrights in the work that you submitted and was ultimately published in 2000 AD? Not at that time. Do you now have an understanding of who owned the copyrights in the works that you submitted and later published in 2000 AD? Can you give me the question again? Sure. I asked if you had an understanding of who owned the copyrights in the works that you submitted and later published by 2000 AD, and I think your answer was not at the time. So I'm just simply asking at some future time, did you come to have an understanding on who owned those copyrights? And then uh, an interjection by Mr. Arnson, who's presumably the Neil Gaiman uh, lawyer. Uh, I'm going to interject here in answering the question to the extent that any understanding is based on communications with lawyers. Uh, don't answer as to that. If your understanding comes from sources other than communications with lawyers, then you can answer it. I washed my hands. After doing those four, maybe five stories for 2000 AD, I washed my hands of them, have not worked for Fleetway since, have not submitted work for Fleetway since, have not gone back and looked at, nor could I find, I suspect these days, any pieces of paper signed with Fleetway since, and chalk them up to experience as a bad job. I also have made no specific study recently of, or at any time of English copyright law. So is your answer that, in fact, you do not have an understanding as to the ownership of the copyrights in the works that you submitted and were later published in 2000 AD? I suspect. No. Don't. Mr. Arnson again. Don't speculate. Just listen to the question and answer it. I don't know whether to instruct or kick there. Kick is fine. I have never done this before. You're doing fine. Uh, let me just make a statement now. I'm not going to be interested in learning from you today anything that you learned from your counsel or discussed with your counsel. I'm not interested in invading attorney-client privilege, and Alan will do a good job of making sure that I don't, even if I wander in there accidentally. Good. So you understand that. Uh, also, if you will bear with me a little bit, and I'm going to look at you, even though you uh, have not done a deposition before. Uh, what you have done that I have never done before is work in the comic book business. I represent Todd McFarlane. I know something about the work. I represented Image Comics. I know a little bit about their history and I am not ever going to scratch the surface of what you know. And part of what we are going to do today is trying to get your understanding of some events that took place as long as 10 years ago and more recently. And also, these events have to do and are in intimately related with the way comic books are written and published. Understood. So if I'm stumbling about in this area uh, a little bit and I'm asking the wrong question, please help me out, okay? I'm not going to ask you uh, to do my deposition for me, but bear with me. I may have some of the wrong terms, if you can correct me uh, so that we are cleaner. Uh, and Alan, uh, if you can, if it comes up, 
I looked at Todd's transcript. I know that happened uh, a few times there. Uh, so the lawyers are, we're getting up to speed, uh, but we will. I need your help today. Uh, is that okay? Understood. Also, and I think this probably uh, makes the most sense, I would like to talk primarily in a chronological fashion. Obviously, uh, we are here today to discuss events that took place with you and Todd McFarlane over the creation of some issues of Spawn and things that uh, move forward from there. I think it makes the most sense to proceed roughly chronologically. We may jump back and forth, uh, but if I'm way off base in my time or you need to explain something that happened prior to what I'm asking about in order to give a good answer, please feel free to do so and we will work our way back around. Is that okay? Okay. And again, speaking chronologically, uh, why don't we start with the beginning? Will you tell me the first time you met Todd McFarlane? It was a convention called Dragon Con in Atlanta in late June or early July of 1992. And what were you doing at that convention? I was guest of honor or one of them. And what were you doing in the comic book world that would have made you guest of honor at the convention in 1992? I was the writer of a comic named Sandman, which in 1992 was the single most acclaimed ongoing series of comics probably that there has ever been in terms of literary rewards received and respect in the industry and personal awards that were coming in for the comic and for the writing thereof. Conjecture? That's badass. That's a good answer. That's a great answer. This is, this is, by the way, the complete opposite of, man, I hate to say this, but if you asked Chris Ware, you would get a totally different answer, despite the fact that that's one of the most literary rewarded cartoonists and, and graphic novelists in comics, but it'd be a very different answer, I think. And, uh, and I like this answer. Sell your strengths. Be, be objective. You know, like he had won these awards, put it out there. Back to the game. Uh, did these personal awards and literary awards, uh, did those translate into box office success, if you will, uh, of the comics? Was Sandman a big seller? You, Sandman slowly worked its way up from the first issue through to the last issue from on a league table of one to 500 being all the comics published that month. We started probably in the low 90s and slowly over the next seven years worked our way up more or less to number one. Since that time, Sandman has been collected in trade paperback and has gone on to continue to sell millions of trade paperbacks. And when you say trade paperback, so we understand, is that a collection of three, four, five, six issues that had previously been published? Yes. You mentioned seven years. Was that the run of the time that you were working on Sandman during which the book was actually published in a monthly form? I would have to work it out exactly. I think the first issue came out in January of, I think the first issue had a January 1989 cover date. 1989 question? 1989 cover date and was actually published at the end of 88 because cover dates and time of publication are not necessarily co coincident. Our last issue went on sale, my recollect recollection is spring of 96. Do you know how many issues overall were contained in this series? 75 plus a special. Why did you stop putting out the Sandman issues? The story was done. We'll come back to Sandman in a little bit. But in 1992, in the summer of 1992, you were in Atlanta at a convention, and this is where you met Todd McFarlane. Is that correct? Yes. Did you know of Todd McFarlane prior to meeting him at the convention? Yes. How is that? When, as a writer of comics, I would get the DC Comics, they send you everything they published that month, and I saw Infinity, Inc., which was drawn by Todd. 
And later I remember somebody coming up to me in the DC offices showing me Spider-Man number one, which Todd drew and which people thought was very funny because the writing demonstrated that the person writing it had never written anything before. Other than that, I knew nothing about him. See, this is what happens when you get involved in some like legal entanglements with somebody who knows how to use words. <laughs> like that motherfucker cut you down in two seconds. Yeah, that was a promo. That was a writer's <laughs> promo. <laughs> so you knew Todd was a comic book artist in 1992. Is that correct? Yes. I also knew that in 1992 that he and several other artists whose work I wasn't particularly familiar with because they were all Marvel people had just left Marvel and founded a comic studio called Image or a publisher called Image, which they announced at the time was all about creators' rights and treating creators well, and that was, uh, so I know, knew that. And how did you come to meet Todd at this convention in Atlanta? Were you on a panel together or? No, we were signing in the same room. And in fact, the room contained the two of us and I was signing on the left at a table and Todd was signing at the right on a table. And we had two lines and they both went out of the hall and went down the stairs and went around. And Todd's line was 14-year-old boys and under, <laughs> and under. And my line started with 16-year-olds and went over, uh, went up from there. Was Todd, si was Todd signing copies of Spider-Man? Spider-Man and Spawn, I think, I think they were the first. I think he was up to Spawn 2, maybe Spawn 3 at that point. So Spawn had really just started at the time. Is that correct? Yes. And Image Comics had just started, uh, as far as you knew, right around that time. Yes. Did you and Todd, at the time, talk about working together? No. Did, you, did there come a time when you did discuss working with Todd? In several months after that, he phoned me up and asked me if I would consider writing an issue of Spawn. And all as far as I know, the Image people, they were all artists. And when Image started, they were getting a lot of stick from fans and from the comics press for being illiterate garbage which is probably a polite way of putting the things they were saying about the comics, chiefly those written by Rob Liefeld. And Todd had phoned me up and asked me if I would write one. He said that he wanted to do... He said what he wanted to do was go for the four best, biggest, and most important writers in comics and get a guest issue written by each of them to show people that an image comic could be well-written and to show his... I don't think he used the word humility. It's not a word that Todd would use. But that was what was being communicated that, hey, I can learn that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and that he wasn't already too big to realize that the other people that other people could help out uh, as to the quality of his creation. Is that right? Yes. And I also think he considered it the ultimate marketing gimmick to have good writing. He said at one point to me during this that Liefeld and company were putting foil embossed stamped covers on things and rolling out new number ones in order to get the numbers. And he had four issues of Good Writers, and that was his gimmick. So did all of this conversation take place during one telephone call, do you recall, or how did this work? There were several conversations. Were they all on the telephone? Yes. At some point, did you agree to write an issue of Spawn? Yes. What was that issue? Or, excuse me, was that issue nine? Yes. Did you discuss with Todd prior to actually doing the writing that was submitted uh, for issue nine, did you discuss financial terms with Todd? No. Never? Define never. Never prior to submitting your work. Uh, let me step back. Uh, at some point, you testified that you, in fact, did write an issue of Spawn. That was issue nine. Is that correct? Yes. And I want to talk a little bit more uh, in detail about the process of the writing. But at this point, uh, was there a time in which you actually submitted a script to Todd McFarland or his company 
to be included along with artwork in issue nine? No. You never submitted a script? A script is not printed along with the artwork in issue nine. The script is what the artist then draws up. If the script had been printed, it would have been a completely different thing. Maybe I misspoke. I'm not being semantic here. No, I understand. And I may have misspoke, uh, and it is important for you to correct me if I do that, because I don't want to use terms incorrectly uh, as they apply to this specific industry. My question was, uh, did you, in fact, submit a script for use in or that was later combined with work to become issue number nine? Yes. Prior to submitting the script, uh, at any time prior to submitting the script, it says that two times, uh, did you ever discuss whether you would get paid by Todd McFarlane for the work? I don't think it came up in those terms. Can I be helpful for a minute so that we don't have to... Sure, yeah. There was no initial discussion of payment amounts. As I recall when I agreed to do it, I got a check and a call from Terry Fitzgerald, who worked for Todd in some capacity, which rather surprised me, but this was after I had agreed to do it, sending a check for $10,000 for having agreed to do it and saying that when the script came in, there will be another 10000 and then after that, it would be based on royalties on, there would be a royalty that would come in on the issue. And when it became apparent that the orders of the issue were, according to them, I believe, 1.1 million copies, they said it was going to be around $100,000, which would be the kind of royalty that you would have gotten from any publisher on those kind of sales. But that was not, none of the financial details were discussed with Todd in those early phone calls. So I understand correctly. Uh, I believe you said that you were uh, surprised to receive the first $10,000 check from Terry Fitzgerald. Is that correct? Yes. So when you received that check from Terry Fitzgerald, uh, had you not discussed any financial terms with Todd at that point? No. You had not? No. Did you call Terry and say, what's this check for? As I recall, it came with a note saying, which I believe we still have in the files, saying, here's $10,000. We will send you another when we get the script. How did the size of that step back? Uh, did Terry's note suggest that this was an advance against future royalties? Yes. How did this size of that advance, $10,000, compare with advances you've received on other works you were doing at the time? It was comparable. Had you ever received a $10,000 uh, advance for one issue of a comic book before? If memory serves, I had received more than that for Black Orchid, which was a three-issue series I had done for DC in 1988. As a novelist, I was used to receiving, I received significantly more than that. As for a one-shot story, it was significantly more than I had received for one comic. Having said that, I had not written at the time, nor had I any interest in writing comics that would have sold in the numbers that Spawn was. And also, we were in the middle, actually, that was, we weren't in the middle, that was the high point of, you can actually go back and look at the graph. That was the high point of what was called the speculator boom. So it was that payment would have been very comparable to anything coming out then as a number one or with a foil embossed cover or anything. Comics were selling 750,000 to 1.5 million copies. These days, 100,000 is incredibly good. These days, 40,000 is really good. You were at Todd McFarlane's deposition last week, were you not? Yes. And you heard Todd tell his version of the events that you were talking about. Is that correct? Yes. Do you recall Todd testifying? And I'm not going to try the exact testimony, but I have read a rough version of the transcript. Do you recall Todd testifying to the effect that each of the four guest writers, and that would include you, of Spawn issues 9 through 11, uh, re 
received essentially the same financial terms. Yes. And that those terms were, as Todd recalled, $100,000 each. Yes. Was there anything about Todd's... Excuse me. Let me ask you one other question. Do you recall Todd testifying that regarding the financial terms between you and him for issue nine, that you wanted to make sure that you did not get any worse than the standard DC Comics deal that you were getting for Sandman at the time? Do you recall Todd testifying to that? I recall Todd approximating... I recall Todd saying that, yes. What I would like to ask you uh, is now to tell your uh, version of those events. And I would like to ask uh, you maybe just generally tell me what you understand to, to be all the discussions you had with Todd about money and terms. And then I will break it down and ask you uh, some questions. And then another lawyer, maybe Neil Gaiman's lawyer. Uh, and what time frame are we talking here? I would like it to make, for instance, that there are some obvious time breaks. One is before the script is submitted. One is when the comic is published. And then obviously going forward, just wait a second. And then Todd's lawyer says, that's a good point. And let's try to do it uh, this way. And this may not uh, always be like a normal deposition procedure, but I think it may help uh, this time. I'm not interested in conversations that you and Todd had in 1995 or 1996 or even later about going back to what was said in 1992. What I'm talking uh, about is this discussion you had at some point, and correct me if I'm wrong, at some point, would you agree that you and Todd came to an agreement in and around 1992 that resulted in you submitting the script that ultimately uh, included, that ultimately was included in issue number nine? Yes. And that you pursuant to the agreement, uh, whatever it was, you received at least $100,000, is that correct? $100,000. And that you, going forward from that point in time, you did receive some royalty payments as a result of that work uh, you had done in issue number nine. Is that correct? I would have to check to see. I'm not asking you to hold uh, right now what you got, but... I don't know. I would have to check. In any event, uh, did you agree to do the work and Todd agreed to pay you something that became $100,000? Is that right? Yes. That's the time period I'm talking about, just that agreement. And I don't know whether that agreement took place prior to doing the work or in the process of doing the work or shortly thereafter. Uh, so uh, so you kind of need to tell me all of that uh, discussion. Before I got the work, before I agreed to do it, there were several phone calls from Todd promising things and trying to persuade me to do it. From my perspective, there were a number of downsides to working with Todd and to working with Image. They were, despite their obvious commercial success, the industry laughing stock at the time, which meant that by working with them, by putting Mr. McFarlane in the position where he could use as his sole advertisement for Spawn 9, a black page with the word Gaiman written on it, that was something that was lending him cachet, and I had to decide whether or not I was willing to do that. So Todd was very much courting me. He very wisely didn't mention money at the time. What he talked to me about was showing unity with creators, sticking it to the big companies, complete creative freedom, not signing anything away, and just being, and also just pointing out that it would shake people up. And I think on the second phone call, when I was still wavering, he also said, okay, you know, I think I have got Alan now where I've got Alan, and I think Dave Sim and Frank Miller are going to say yes. Come on, it's the big four. You can't be left out. And those were the things that he used to persuade me. 
I remember him offering complete creative freedom. The phrase he used was, you can have 22 pages of Spawn reading the newspaper for all I care. You can make up his past. You can do whatever you like. You can have complete creative freedom. I said yes in the end. Money was not discussed. The point money was discussed was after the first check came in with a little note from Terry Fitzgerald after I had done the first, my first sort of brainstorming. I had just brainstormed, said, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea, and sent them off to him, and I got this check. The next time Todd phoned, I said, by the way, you know, you sent me a check. You haven't sent me any kind of contract. And Todd said, we don't send contracts. We treat you better. You know, it's just that's not how we do business. We don't do contracts, but we will treat you, he said. But I will tell you what, I will treat you better than DC ever would with their contracts. And that was the sum total of it. And I thought, okay. And I sent my agent, Marilee Heifetz, my literary agent, her share of the money, her 10%. And she phoned me up and said, where's the contract that goes with this? And I said, there is no contract. Todd has said he is going to treat me better than anybody would with a contract. And she said, you trust him? And I said, yeah, he seemed like a very good guy on the phone and he is not asking me to sign anything away. So obviously I trusted him. And that was where we got up to at that point. And that was the entire conversation about money. Once the orders started coming in on these books, spawned from what this is, I don't know if this from personal knowledge, but this is what Todd told me at the time. The orders from Spawn for Spawn 6 or 7 were down to about 600,000 copies. And with the Alan Moore issue, they went up to about 1.2 million. And for me, they were about 1.1 million. So they doubled as a result of the gimmick. And Dave Sim came in at about 800,000 and Frank Miller's was up there around a million. And he decided to just said, I'm just giving you all $100,000. And this was after the orders had started coming in and he saw what was actually happening. And he said, I'm just going to give you all $100,000 rather than do the sums. So you each have got a round number and you can do with it what you will. And I did the sums in my head, figured $1.1 million, $1.95 comics, $100,000 seemed about comparable to the kind of money I would be getting from DC if I decided to write a number one for them at that point. And yeah, left it about there. I had recently done, about that time, I did Sandman number 50, our 50th anniversary edition, which came out with a special cover, extra length issue, and at the time had sold over a quarter of a million copies. So, you know, you were looking at $30,000, $40,000 royalty check on that. So it was definitely comparable. Can we take a quick break here? And maybe is that the logical break for, for this episode, Jimmy? We'll, we'll continue this uh, again uh, in, the, in the near future? Yeah, I think that's a good break point. And uh, by the way, we are we are 20 pages into 130 pages, but it really sets up a lot of interesting stuff. Just seeing the numbers on royalties, Ed, for yeah. me, it's kind of eye opening. I don't know how all this stuff's calculated. You know, you figure out royalties, especially in comics, it's after they're profitable. Um, you can figure out your cover price, but you're selling them to distributors at half that price, maybe even more of a discount. Printers are taking stuff like. It's not that easy to figure out how all this breaks down. So having some numbers here to work with is really interesting. Having numbers of issues sold of Spawn at this time, I enjoy looking at those. There's a lot here to, to get started with. And having no contract, wild. I love that there's an agent involved that's gone, where's the contract? You're paying? Like, you're like getting blood money or something now. Like, was that $1,000 cash he sent to his agent? <laughs> You live long enough to become the villain, man. And uh, the the image guys, you know, they left Marvel, bad conditions, yada yada. 
Todd McFarlane, man, is the king of his castle. And you just automatically assume when it's two creative people, mano y mano, you've been through all the same struggles I've been through. Let's do a homeboy deal, shake hands, put together a comic, road to hell, good intentions. I'm getting, I'm getting nervous now with all these Red Room covers. I don't <laughs> think I have a contract on this. Um, it's, it's really interesting, too, because, like, I don't want this to be framed like McFarlane's a villain. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I know he has detractors out there. Same with all these image guys. I think it's really interesting. Like, this is year one of image. You know, like, whenever you're saying, hey, I think we can sell our own characters, great. What you're not thinking about is, like, what about the person who does the cover variant or does a guest script or spins, I spin off a book and someone's drawing it, like, these are not the things you're working out. A bunch of artists, some of them very young, no business experience, really. Like, there's so much stuff that comes up whenever you do anything. Yes. And I just think, like, these dudes jumped into not just the deep end, but, like, the middle of the ocean or something with Image. You know, considering the speculator boom and the numbers they're doing and, you know, it's hard to tell what they're hearing from Malibu. It would have been over completely overwhelming from every direction. Who are you even going to get feedback from on this like there's oh, no precedent i, I, I want to hire some writers how do i do that what's the moral or ethical or, or legal way to do this um you know like there's all these conditions to keep in mind as we're going through this i love it i'm excited to keep going because of the information that comes out and i don't want it to just be like we're gonna pile up on somebody here that's not what we're doing but man it's interesting this, to see like all the machinations that go into something like this this is a public record uh, you know, this is out there. It is an incredible historic document uh, in the history of comics. This channel was built upon the speculator boom of the 1990s. We we come from that. Uh, Wizard Magazine is something that we were using to document those events. And a best case scenario can, can come where, you know, a collaboration happens. You create something that... Uh, I mean, let's be honest, like Neil Gaiman, how much time do you think he put into his issue of Spawn and created this thing, right? But then the characters he designed and, and put together see life elsewhere beyond that. And there's no contract in place. Things get dicey. It's a great point, Ed, because this happens all through comics and it still happens all through comics this way. There are several licensed publishers who don't pay royalties. And the, and the issue isn't he gets $100,000 for writing this issue. Nobody's disputing that. And I'm sure there are people at home going, maybe spend a week on it, maybe spend a day or two on it, maybe spend a month on it. And any way you slice it up, $100,000 seems pretty great for writing one issue of a comic book. Sure, for sure. But the issue is that comic is so profitable and it keeps making money. So why doesn't he... Why, who should get all that profit? Yeah. You know, shouldn't the creator or one of the creators get some of that profit? So that's one of the issues that comes up here, regardless that he could have been paid a million dollars for that first issue. Once it gets into profit, how does that profit get split up? And like I say, like there are publishers, legitimate publishers that do not pay profits. Um, in fact, I, I've heard stories about like Dark Horse for a long time did their Aliens and Predators stuff. When Disney bought Fox, they get that license, yeah. reverts back to Disney. And I believe those creators, D Disney doesn't owe them anything from a legal standpoint. So, you know, that stuff could still be reprinted. It could still generate a profit, but you don't necessarily get paid for it if you're the creator, even though your previous contract said that you did. This, These are big issues. Yeah. And if you're an independent contractor, like, this is what you wrestle with. And when these offers come in and you're like, 
oh yeah, it would be great to draw aliens or spawn or, you know, write a story or, or something. It sounds really good and it might even pay well, but there's so much more to consider because it is, a, you have a finite amount of time. It's nice if that stuff continue, if the work you make continues to be profitable for you. And if it's being profitable for, to someone, this is where you do your homework and you weigh which project, where you want to spend that valuable time that, that we have so, such little of. This is a heck of a textbook, man. We're learning some I'm lessons excited. here. I want to read, you know, you talk about us reading Wizard and I go, yeah, and then we would read like Comics Journal and it's a little better caliber of interview. Get them under oath in depositions. I want to read all of my comic book creator interviews through depositions. This is amazing. Neil Gaiman, heck of a wordsmith. <laughs> he really Throwing is. Throwing in jabs, cutting promos here and there, puffing himself up. It does make me wonder, like, uh, how many cartoonists have given depositions? Because I think probably most of those are public records. And I, yeah. I bet a lot of them have given depositions on various topics. Maybe not specifically their books, but it could be a variety of topics. And uh, imagine all this stuff with, like, Kirby yeah. court drama, you know, like... Absolutely. Some of that stuff, public records? Let's go you find know? Some, of that, uh, some of that Gary Groth... Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Like Gary yeah. stuff because he's a heck of a wordsmith. I, I, th this is an incredible document. Yeah, it's a lot of fun going through it. And it probably helps that it's Neil Gaiman, you know, a guy who who, who can write, who knows his way around the English language. The, the Toddy Mac ones are going to be fun too, <laughs> man. And I'm, I promise, man, we're just going to give the facts. We're just going to read it. We're not going to be, uh, there will be no Toddy impersonation. I'm excited to, to read his version. I read some of Larry Martyr's last night and I found that stuff completely compelling. So... You know, it's kind of an audio book. I like it this is. format, too, this idea of doing this this kind of like kind of format. And I'll tell you this without uh, tipping our, our, our hat in a way that somebody else could could scoop us. Um, I have another interview or, or another kind of like transcribed piece like this that I would like us to do. So and you know what? I think that one is a three man that's true. joint. That's so we got to we got we to pull, pull Tom into that gimmick. So, you know, if you're listening to this at home, like I kind of think of it as like audio book, you know, and, and uh, I pass it around. It's something a little different. And I think there's a lot more material like this that we could that we could try to bring out in this way. And, and you know, we'll get better at this stuff, too. Neil Gaiman under oath. I think uh, we have to go over to that Pacer website with our credit cards and see <laughs> what kind of uh, court documents we could unpack. Until then, kayfabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What do you have out there, Jimmy? Join me on patreon.com slash jimrug. Uh, you can download 10 or 12 out-of-print zines and mini-comics as soon as you join me there. You can see a lot of my original art, scripts, process. You can see how I make comics compared to how Neil Gaiman does it here. <laughs> uh, all that and more at patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room, the anti-social network book collection. Hit the stands uh, November 10th. And uh, it's going quick, man. Amazon bought half the print run. Those comics are going quick with these world uh, supply chain issues that we've had. Who knows how the reprint, reprint's going to shake out. It might take a while for that to come out. So go to your shop if you see it. Don't take for granted that it'll, it'll be there the next day. Here's the other thing, man. We're starting the next season of Red Room Comics. Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number one. Going to be hitting the stands in December. Uh, links to order and pre-order all these comics are in my link tree in the description below this video. You can subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. Give them those merchandise, Jimmy. We're going to be on our way. Make more comics.